Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode I'm chatting to Vibar Cregan-Reed. Now Vibar is really quite unusual for compared to the guests I've had so far on the podcast because he's not a science graduate, he's not in, you know, he, he's not in that sort of biomedical uh, side of things at all. In fact, he is actually um, a reader, an academic uh, in England um, with a particular interest in English uh, and uh, the environment. But he's written a couple of books which have just tremendous insight and um, has delved into a lot of the science. And then we talk a little bit about this in the podcast. But the great thing about his most recent book, which is called uh, Primate Change, was that it very, very much challenged my preconceptions. And a lot of the time I was reading through the book and going, yeah, but, you know, and I had, I always had, I thought that he wasn't going to fully answer it. And he very much did. I, I mentioned this during the course of the podcast. And um, gosh, you, you've really got to love a book that does that, that, you know, pokes at your preconceptions and then he backs it all up as well. So uh, I just want to say thank you again for your support of the podcast. It's very much appreciated. And um, if you do want to sign up for the fortnightly newsletter, then um, you can head to blockology.io forward slash journal. And I, I guess my plea this week um, relates to um, a slight change I'm making in my own life. And I'm certainly going to go through this in future episodes. Uh, Cal Newport, um, who has written several books in the past, Deep Work is one that I've talked about, has written a book called Digital Minimalism. Uh, and there are lots of other people delving into this area, but um, it's encouraged me. I've actually given up social media. I've deleted my Facebook account. I've deleted my Instagram account. I'm still hanging on to Twitter, but I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to stick with it. And I think the, I mean, the, the underlying message, if anything, from something like digital minimalism is not that the technology is necessarily bad. And obviously the podcast falls into that category as well. So there is a kind of deep irony in uh, making that suggestion, if not outright hypocrisy. And it's not that I regard the technology as bad. I just regard it as being a bit uh, all consuming and it pushes out the other good stuff that we should be doing. Now, whether that's something that's a bit more, you know, to do with crafts or, to be honest, one of the perhaps the best things and one of the most important things that we should be doing um, is having conversations. Uh, social media is very good at connecting people. It's not so good at the conversation side. And I guess that's my plea this week is actually go out, have a conversation. If you get a chance and it's relevant, mention the podcast. Uh, word of mouth is perhaps the best thing we can do rather than asking you to tweet it or stick it on Facebook. Now, of course, if you want to do those things, I'd be very grateful. But I hope actually what you do is perhaps just mention it to people. And I think those are perhaps the ones which, when I've had feedback, I really appreciate the most. Uh, people tell other people about the podcast. And when I've had recommendations for things like podcasts, those are often the ones that mean the most to me. But more than anything, I just quite like us all to be a little bit healthier. And certainly the evidence at the moment seems to be pointing towards getting a little bit more balance when it comes to uh, how we interact with the technology. So um, speaking of conversations, I had a really great time speaking to Vibar. We just had a lot of fun um, and it felt really, you know, it felt like a really good conversation in that regard. Uh, the, the whole kind of premise is that Vibar has looked at the environment and he's gone back sort of, you know, thousands of years and so this is not some kind of walking advert for the paleo diet, but what he's done is taken a very critical look at the kind of things we did and how modern ailments play into that as well. 
And so things like the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution have really had a startling effect on our bodies and the kind of diseases we suffer, things like asthma, chronic back pain. The fact that someone was invented a chair and we stopped squatting down and that has changed our body shapes, uh, you know, our strengths and capabilities as well. Uh, so we cover lots of things as our full list of the sort of the areas on the show notes that you can look at as well. Um, and But first of all, I started by asking Vibar how an academic in an English department got into talking about evolution health and the effect of things like sitting on the modern body. So I'm a, what's called a reader, which is a great job title. I'm a reader in English and environmental humanities. And I ended up writing about running and movement and the body because I just I had a very valuable writing experience when I went into academia. I worked for a really, really, really long time um, on um, on and off on a on a, an academic monograph, which is basically a book on a on a, a very very specific subject. And the book went through many incarnations, um, but I, with some alarm, as the book was about to come out, I sort of totted up the years it had taken me to do it, and you know, on and off. And sometimes it was off for, you know, nine months or 12 months. On and off, it had taken me um, seven years. <laughs> and I got to the other end of this process and the, the book was delivered. This sort of quite slim volume um, was delivered. And I just thought, hmm, that really is a lot of effort, isn't it? Uh, for not a great deal of reward. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I was I was just tired of it. I was I was I was bored by the subject. I'd I'd been doing it too long, and and um, yeah. So I just had enough, and I just thought I'm not doing that kind of project again. I haven't got the energy, and and basically nobody cares. Um, <clears throat> it was good for my it was good for my uh, job, but you know, um, mm. do, doing something like writing you know, a, a 90,000 word report. It's not really just very fulfilling work. So I started, I thought, right, I'm going to do something that I'm really passionate about, that I find really interesting, that's really going to drive my curiosity. And I think I've come to believe that curiosity is just one of the most important um, facets for uh, happiness. Happiness is maybe too strong a word, but uh, curiosity is just so essential to, to just keep you going, really. So I, I thought, what am I really interested in? And I thought, well, I'm really interested in 19th century literature. I'm particularly interested in, in writings about the environment and nature and things like that. And I absolutely love running. So I thought, okay, well, <laughs> no, nobody's done this before. Um, so I, I just started a, a blog. I'd go out for a run. <clears throat> I'd usually come in, uh, with an idea or something and I'd, I'd, um, sit down in the sort of, white heat of of energy that you get from from doing uh long runs without a pen or paper or a phone or anything i just usually just splurge out um you know 300 400 500 words on an idea and sometimes the ideas were were terrible um but sometimes they were really really good i mean there was one um i think one of the about the third blog i did was about oscar wilde and the treadmill and that ended up becoming a, a complete chapter in footnotes so that that blog then built up into the, a long form work, which was footnotes, and that came out about two two or three years after the previous book. So I'd I'd picked up the pace, <laughs> um, but it also meant that I did lots of work on things like biomechanics, and I went to uh, Boston to meet 
people like Daniel, Professor Daniel Lieberman at Harvard and Irene Davis at the Spalding National Running Center. So I got kind of quite up to speed on some of the science. And then a book came out and I was just running in York one day. And I suddenly thought, uh, as I was looking at the place called the Mavesmire, this incredible um, just open space, which is a race course as well on the outskirts of York. And I just thought, well, you know, this is a really impressive landscape. And as I was looking out of it, looking out at it, I thought, you know, lots of work is being done about us looking at landscapes, us looking at and um, um, judging landscapes. Somebody should really do something about what the landscape is doing to us. And that's where climate change came from. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, gosh, well, they're both fantastic books and having read them both. And thank well, you, thank I, you. I, I really like the fact that you haven't got that science background as well. And yes. it, it kind of, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you found looking at and absorbing that kind of thing, but what was, is really great about both the books, and you can see that you can see that primate change is very much a, um, uh, a kind of a development of many some of the things you covered in footnotes um, yeah. and um is that you that historical context as well that you've added in and particularly you know, that literature el- those literary elements and footnotes is much stronger on that than primate change obviously it's a slightly different book yeah. but you've really kind of layered in a whole extra dimension about that kind of environment and although the various revolutions industrial agricultural and things that have happened to us in the past yeah um, yeah, you wouldn't get that in a normal pop science book. So no. I think um, it, I, I do find the science very challenging um, <laughs> uh, to read. And But luckily, you know, there are lots of fantastic people out there like Dan Lieberman, like Irene Davis, um, uh, uh, like Graham Rook, for example. Um, there are lots of really, really great people out there that not only will they explain it to a novice, but they'll give you their time and you can use, uh, you know, use a, uh, interviews with them to to help make sense of them and i think actually not having the experience means that i'm in a position to sort of pull focus um ask some some quite big questions and also actually explain it often in a way that a, a novice would understand uh, yeah I, I think that's a, you're very much i think you've vaulted over that whole problem of the curse of knowledge thing that yes. perhaps people who are right who are who are academics or immersed in the science or medicine whatever day in day out that's where you've really that's where the books really excel because that that curse of knowledge is such a problem of rolling it back and asking that and you're almost like that's like a kind of the movie thing where they put like a novice in you know the the rookie in with this, oh yeah and who the rookie is there solely in the purpose to ask the ask the questions that the audience want to know and yeah i'm not yeah. suggesting you're a rookie in that regard but you're <laughs> you're, you're kind of asking those kind of questions and make and you yeah. know and not making assumptions as well and it the, the book certainly challenged some of my assumptions particularly primate change and particularly about whether i mean i'd written down here and we were just saying earlier that one of the if i could summarize it in one phrase it was like modern life is rubbish was the one (laughs) i would use but you really go all the way back to sort of prehistory and bring it forward to do that um so i I wonder if i could just i'd get you to one of the things as you described human life as the human body is like you know 2.0 2.1 3.0 going from agricultural just to tell us a little bit about the big picture of where you sort of what you've seen happening to the human body over these sort of 10 these thousands of years so modern life is rubbish yeah i mean obviously i think if you read uh primate change you would you're quite right to make that conclusion because it really is saying um (laughs) you know that we look about us and we we see, you know, fantastic healthcare systems. Um, there are great things about longevity, lo- uh, great things about modern life, like longevity, the fact that we live 
uh, or at least we think we live so much longer than than we used to. Um, but you know, I'm 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 you know I'm knocking on the door of being a chronic asthmatic now. I uh, uh, and I, <laughs> I also have back pain as well. Um, uh, nearly, I'd say nearly chronic back pain, so I have it most of the time. Mm. So. You know, you look at modern life and it is great. You can go out and get coffee and, and do some work on your iPad. But, you know, back pain and, and asthma. And when my asthma gets bad, I think, bloody hell, this is what I'm probably going to die of. It's really, it's a really horrible thing to, mm. to experience. So um, part of my own experience, my own sort of health experiences is what drove my interest in climate change. And um, so I went into the book, uh, knowing that uh, I was going to find that the modern body uh, was affected by modern life, but I found a lot more than than I expected to. So, um, I mean, the, the book starts by talking about the importance of of DNA, and I think when most people look in a mirror, either just look at their face or they stand in front of a, a mirror, they we have a sort of default belief that our DNA is like a computer program that some, you know, it's just, you know, we just press enter in the womb and, and then this body comes out and emerges and our height is set by our DNA and our, and our face and to some extent our, our weight, although probably fewer people believe that one, but we certainly look at our faces and think our faces are a unique expression of our DNA. And what I just kept finding over and over and over that everything from the size of our feet to our height, to the shape of our faces, to our ability to see whether we need to wear spectacles is not just down to our DNA. Lots of it is created by our environment. So that the, the modern body is really a, um, a work of art that's been 10,000 years in the making. It's, it's, it's one that's been uh, reshaped by the way that we live. So our, you need a DNA and you, you need DNA and you need an environment in which that DNA um, is going to work to get a, a, a body. So if you change the environment, it also means the body is going to change. Yeah, and I think that's the, some of the, one of the things that you've described with that, the kind of, the, you know, the 2.0 body that the agricultural revolution, the, yeah. that kind of that changed the body to those, those initial changes when we stopped being hunter gatherers. Yeah, and then we yeah. started living in cities, and then, of course, the Industrial Revolution of the nineteenth century. Yeah, um, as well. That must have been a particularly interesting area for you to address with your. Um, oh, know, yeah. it shines through with your interest in nineteenth-century English literature as well. So yeah. documenting I mean, it so well. There were some lovely things. So, um, like literary history, one of the things I was interested in in climate change was looking at the history of the chair. Yeah, and um, you know, literary history really helped me out there because you know there are no chairs in the King James Bible. There are no chairs in in all of in all of Homer. Um, uh, there, there are no chairs in Hamlet and I think there's three in King Lear. Yeah. And the reason for this is because chairs traditionally were associated with, you know, regality with, with, um, uh, with power. And then by the time you get to Dickens's bleak house in 1852 to 53, at the height of the industrial revolution, some, suddenly there's a 187 of them. So the industrial revolution is this huge this point this this point of huge change for for humanity and as a as a you know a literary historian of the victorian period we get very um bogged down and and very focused on the lives of particular authors like you know dickens or 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 hardy for example when in fact what's going on are the the, the it's the beginning of the biggest changes that humanity has ever known 
And it starts, yeah, it starts with the agricultural revolution. Um, somebody, I was talking to a, another author the other day, um, and he he said that um, the agricultural revolution it's, it was you know really really important change for humans because it's when mining began. And I sort of went, sorry, say that again. And he said, yeah, if you think about it, you know, planting a seed in the earth is 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 mining. It's a kind of mining. And I just thought, wow, that is that is great. I'd love to steal that. Um, uh, but it's a lovely idea. Yeah. So uh, mm. basically, when we stopped moving, when we stopped walking um, about nobody knows when it was, but it was probably in the region of 20 to, to 40,000 years ago when we first started um a simple horticulture and, and agriculture that required us to settle. We suddenly adopted so many habits that, um, while not pathological at the time, have since gone on to be developed to such an extent that, for example, 85% of people in Singapore are now short-sighted as a result of uh, living in living indoors. You know, so that, that, that there's a seed that you can trace back all the way to the agricultural revolution when somebody gathered together some you know branches of oak trees to make a hut and you can follow that all the way through to um uh high-rise living in singapore where children don't get to go outside anymore and as a result their eyes without um experiencing good quality light their eyes uh, continue growing and they become chronically short-sighted one of the really interesting things about reading the book was that i was I wasn't initially convinced by a lot of these things and I kept going, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. and every time you, every time I did that, you addressed it in the next chapter. I was like, this, that's Wait. getting, a, that's getting a bit annoying now. The, <laughs> and one of the things I was really impressed with was that kind of, and I hadn't really, even as a, as a doctor, I just hadn't really considered it. It's just, you made the case for how many modern diseases are purely to do with the environment we live in. And, you know, asthma, the short sightedness, I, I just, it didn't occur to me that that was an environmental thing. I always, if you'd pressed me before reading the book, I'd have said, well, people in the Far East have more short sightedness because they've got different shaped eyeballs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Frankly, yeah, yeah. it's to do but with, I mean, you know, but to, actually, <laughs> but actually, that is correct. Yeah. And the, the reason that they have differently shaped eyeballs is because, uh, you know, I, um, when you're, when you're growing up, uh, your eyeballs are, are basically going through a process of growth as well. And um, uh, this doesn't really stop until I think we're about 20 or 21. Um, but uh, if your uh, eye doesn't receive the right kind of input, the right kind of data, so it knows when it's re reached its optimum shape, it continues growing. So the mm. result is that that lots of people in Southeast Asia would have differently shaped eyeballs. I mean, that's literally what short-sightedness is. Yeah, yeah. There, there is there is a genetic component. I, I spoke to. Um, we're making some. Uh, we're making a radio series about it for the World Service. Um, we're just recording it next week. Actually, we've done all the interviews. I spoke to Chris Hammond from King's. Um, from King's is it King's Holly College Hospital? Uh, yeah, so he said that there are um, there's anything between sort of 100 to 400 genes in play or in the frame for short sightedness, but they they have a very um, it, they have a very weak um, uh, determining power for the actual outcome. It seems to be about 90% of it must has to come from from a, 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 an environment, and it's mostly to do with poor quality light. Yeah, not getting in, not getting outside. 
yeah, yeah, not playing it. It's incredible. The, so one of the things I, <coughs> that you mentioned, just just to go back to, the, the chairs thing I think was fascinating because that's something we don't really consider and that, you know, the one and it relates into one of the main areas, if you like, themes of the book is the sitting down and the sedentariness. Yeah. Is that if we didn't have chairs, and it, that also leads into an interesting discussion about squatting and yeah. the importance of squatting. I know the first thing we'll ask you is to tell us a little bit about how squatting fits in, but I was also curious just to find out how you get on yourself with if you're still practicing a squatting regime to try to improve in that regard. Um, <laughs> so squatting, squatting isn't very practical in modern life. <laughs> um, I, I, I did it once in public. Um, it didn't, it didn't end well. Um, I remember I was waiting for a friend. So it's, it's a, if you've, if you've got a bad back, it's quite, it's, mm. you know, of a, of a particular kind, um, which needs lots and lots of detail, but some people get relief from bending forwards. Some people get relief from bending backwards. So I have, um, a very common middle-aged back problem, which is I have, um, very mild arthritis probably in my, um, stacking joints on my spine, my upper visual joints, but like most people do. Um, but one way to relieve it is by um, opening up the lower back so it disengages the joints. And one way to do that is with a squat. So um, <laughs> about, it's about a year and a half ago, I, I walked all the way to Lewisham, which is about um, it's about five miles from where I live. So by the time I got there, my back was a bit achy. Mm. And my friend was just in, in the optician, funnily enough, um, in, um, in the Lewisham shopping centre. And so... Uh, when I got there, I just had to wait a couple of minutes and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll squat while I wait. So I took my phone out, sat down into a squat and within seconds, <laughs> a family, um, a mum and dad and two kids walked by. I mean, there were loads of people walking by. It was a sort of, I was trying to be invisible because there were so many people there. <laughs> anyway, they walked by and one muffled something, one um, whispered, the, the dad whispered something to the mum. And then the mum said, I think he's taking a shit. <laughs> and it was, so that was my first public squatting experience. And I just thought, okay, I've learned my lesson now. <laughs> and I, I stood up and, and I've never squatted in public. Since. Paula Radcliffe I do, style. <clears throat> I do do it at home um, just because it's, it's a lovely way to stretch your lower back. Mm. I've tried working in a squat, but mm. it, it doesn't it doesn't really work. It's, you know, squatting and keyboard use aren't really that. Um, conducive uh, to each other. Um, but one thing that a squat does, for example, so lots of the problems, no, not lots of the problems. One of the big problems with modern life is that our feet are, are changing. They're getting bigger because they're getting flatter. And the reason that they're getting flatter is because lots of the intrinsic musculature is, has just become atrophied from lack of use. And one major difference between, um, sitting down and a squat is that when you sit down, um, your your bones and your muscles and your tendons are not loaded, but when you squat, they are they are fully loaded with your with your with your body weight. They're using the um, you know they're stimulating bone density, they're stimulating you know tendon growth, they're stimulating muscle use. So there there is a there is a difference between the two things. Um, I do sit down a lot. I've tried a standing desk. Um, and it doesn't really work for me. In fact, you know, they don't really work for lots of people. No, it's interesting. You, you talked about them a little bit. And I've, I'm actually stood at a standing desk at the moment. But um, I find that um, I, can't, I can't use it all the time. I guess it, gives, it actually gives me a sore back. It works my, makes my yeah. back pain slightly worse. And in, interestingly, I suspect my back pain is very similar to you. I, I, I tend to get a lot of low back ache. And it's relieved by squatting as well. Um, right. When, How and long, you, 
Mm-hmm. What what sort of age region are you in? You I'm in? 46. Ah, okay, yeah. So, so you, yeah, it's probably epiphyseal joints. Yeah. So, yeah. and you know, sometimes you know, it's very variable. I have times where it's fine, but you know, I've no complaints about that. But I do find that sometimes it's just the variation helps. Sometimes I stand, sometimes I sit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I almost, I do. I have started squatting as part of a strength training regime. I think that's incredibly important and something you dip into in the book as well so you know kind of doing squats for that but i mean i think the thing that people having spent having visited india and nepal and places like that you know that people you know people just sit in squat for relaxation they can sit in a squat and be completely comfortable as if they were sitting in an armchair yeah um so i i I can do it for about 10 or 15 minutes um no i can do it for about 10 minutes comfortably and then after that i'd be i'd be trying to hold it Mm. Uh, but yeah you do you see people just watching the world go by um uh, in southeast asia um very occasionally like around covent garden or something you might see some um asian people doing it but on the whole it's not something that we that we do here which is a shame really i think you mentioned in the book actually the younger generation the millennials in um india are losing the yeah, ability to yeah, squat that's right yeah they've lost the ability they can't even sit cross-legged or anything and so it's there's a real generational difference um from sedentary work and chair use yeah and i guess that goes to the thing is that the, and one of the reasons it's so important and you touch on this book is it's like um it's all about gluteals isn't it uh, you know the, the importance of them is just and we modern life being rubbish it's modern life is particularly <laughs> grim for your glutes it's it is really really grim for your glutes the, the reason for about ten thousand years i'd say that um we've been uh, looking for solutions to things that often are not really problems and what's what the result of that has been has been just a, a massive, absolutely massive diminution of um, movement, which has resulted in a loss of ability and a loss of strength. So there's no there's no absolutely solid science for this because different um, research techniques have been used and um, different um, different groups of researchers have focused on scanning different parts of the body. But I spoke to um, uh, uh, Professor Tracy Kivel at the University of Kent, actually my own university, who's um, been working a lot on on uh, hands, the hands of primates. Uh, and there was also a study done, where are we, 2019? There was also a study done at the beginning of last year, 2018, that looked at humeral uh, rigidity, so the rigidity of the upper arm bones. And these different studies have produced slightly different results, but the, you know, if you were going to jump to a conclusion, it would be to say that between hunter gathering and, and agricultural, um, agriculturalism, there was a, there was a, a bone density drop of about 30%. But, um, the second study that looked at the humerus suggested that, um, uh, um, even the, the arms of agriculturalist women from about 5,000 5, years ago had 30% greater density than modern humans today. Mm. So very roughly, and it is very, very roughly, we're looking at two drops of 30% in, in um, strength and bone density, which means that we've lost more than 50, well, 51% of, <laughs> of our strength as humans. Now, this may not be a problem in itself but you know as muscle sizes change as bone density change the way that we move actually changes and our, our gluteals you know the gluteal um um the muscle attachments on um to carnivore which is a um uh which is a a, a very a, a nearly complete fossil remains from about 1.6 million years ago 
the muscle attachments on Takana boys suggest that they that we just had much much bigger gluteal muscles than we than we have now because we used them because mm. we climbed and we moved and we didn't sit down on our asses the whole time <laughs> yeah yeah the irony being that we are parked on them while yes, they're, indeed. We while they're withering away now. Yeah. yeah they used to they used to be these fantastic engines of the human body and we now use them as cushions yeah it is it's incredible and one of the things that i read the, the whole sitting thing that's really important and you go into really well in the book is that the evidence is tending to show that it's all very well doing exercise but actually the exercise and the sedentariness are actually separate you, yes. you, you can you cannot completely make up for um the fact that you're spending 15 hours a day sitting by doing exercise which is we need to just be more generally physically active yeah so the science is the science is quite complicated mm. um but yeah the, the the two things are are um they're not completely exclusive but they are they are less connected than you, than you might think. Yeah. The most recent research suggests that you need about 60 to 75 minutes uh, of activity each day to offset um, the effects. No, the mortality of um, the mortality rate, uh, the mortality effects of um, uh, sedentary work and life. But even this research, you know, it doesn't go into uh chronic pain it doesn't go into disability adjusted life years um so exercise the the people that always fare the worst are the people that do nothing so the people that do mm. no exercise whatsoever um or no physical activity whatsoever uh will always come out worst in these graphs um moving up from that it's uh, it would be people that do moderate amounts of exercise then there's people that do obscene amounts of exercise they live slightly longer um but not all that much longer you might think that being an olympic athlete would buy you lots and lots of extra time but it doesn't it buys you about it buys you about 2.8 years which given that your life has been entirely devoted to fitness and good diet it doesn't really seem like a worthy reward to me 2.8 years and then um the people that live by far the longest are the ones that have never really been to gyms the people that have had um um not had a great deal of access to very modern foods like um um refined carbohydrates or you know uh calorifically very dense foods and they're also people that have, haven't done any exercise and by that i mean they haven't gone to a gym and worked out instead what they've had is jobs that have kept them uh lightly to moderately active for sustained periods during their day um and again as the science matures over the next few years i think we're going to see that that this is going to be the future for the human race i think what we're in now um where we do sustained amounts of sedentary work is is a blip i i think it's not going to it's not going to last very long. It only started really in the within with the nineteen seventies, but even even actually sedentary work in the nineteen seventies or even the nineteenth century, um, you know, people lugged heavy ledgers about, or in the nineteen seventies they walked backwards and forwards to the photocopier, or they went to the filing room, and now you know all of that is gone. All we do is look at a screen. Filing is done on the screen. Uh, we don't we don't photocopy things anymore. We scan them on our phone. Um, so I think we're now at the point where it can't get any worse, <laughs> and I think we're going to start seeing some uh, changes. 
Um, I think you're right. I, and I, I think that it's always hard when you're in the middle of history, when you're living in the present, because you just assume almost that this is the final development of yeah, humanity. Yeah, the present's normal. The present's the best bit. Yeah, yeah, we're always, we're rubbish. It's kind of recognizing the fact that everything keeps on changing. But I think you might well be right that something will change. There'll have to be, we'll look back in a hundred years and they'll look at us and go, those poor sods who sat on their butts doing nothing for They're 15 hours bastards. a day. Yeah. <laughs> they must have been miserable. Um, have you seen um, the Disney film, Wall-E? No, I haven't. It's it's absolutely terrific. Um, and there's a there's a uh, you know humans have basically trashed the planet. They've left behind this little robot Wally. Um, and um, the story isn't fantastic, but just the representations of the the, the the planet that's been left behind. But there's also a few humans have gone back up into space, right. and um, they're they're rather overweight. Um, I'm not certainly not making fun of people who are overweight. I'm overweight myself, so they're rather overweight and um, their bones have atrophied to the point where their joints don't actually connect anymore. Um, And so there's a wonderful bit where one of them, uh, as part of a sort of chase sequence, has to get out of his chair and up onto his feet. And they have to play, they play the Thus Spake Zarathustra music, you know, like the 2001 music as he stands (laughs) up and finally has to use his body. It's very good. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I've I've watched the start a couple of times, I think. My kids haven't quite got into it for some reason, so I'll have to go back to that, I think. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's a film for kids, actually. I mean, there's 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 bright colors and nice yeah. noises and pretty shapes but um yeah it's it's worth it's worth watching i think so one of the questions is how are you integrating i was i, I read this and I, the last couple of weeks and i was like you know what i need to do is my life is parked in the university at my desk not moving is yeah. that i need to make massive efforts to start walking more and you you yeah. discuss there's a there's sections in your book called um winding back yeah winding back which are all kind of tips for a healthier life and i know you talk more about the single most important of all walk i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you're finding introducing that into your life okay so i um the the main changes that i made as a result of the research that i did for climate change are that um so i'm nearly i'm nearly 50 i've never been without a car um since i was about 25 i think 24, 25 maybe. Um, and for the first time, so my car um, lease came up for renewal and I just thought, oh, I wonder what would happen if I just didn't didn't renew it. And uh, the, the car lease company got, you know, more and more freaked out as we got closer to the deadline. They couldn't believe I wasn't going to take another car. <laughs> and I, I couldn't either. Um, but I didn't. And um, it's meant, it's, it's, it's changed my life in, in some ways that are, very inconvenient but also ways in in which it makes it easier for me to get physical activity because uh, you know when i go out now i'm mostly on foot um i have a friend who very kindly lends me her car when i need to do a car type job you know like get a christmas tree or something yeah. um but i'm without a car so it means that i walk a lot more um my uh my gym membership expired on the 1st of january so i think i was one of the fir- few um few people to leave a gym on the 1st of january instead of joining it um and what so what i realized was that i needed to to become more active you know i'm an academic like you are and and i spend most of my day uh, spend most of my day writing um but I also know that you can't spend all day writing, that your writing gets slightly more shit as the day goes on. <laughs> um, and so what I now do is I've become a, <laughs> I've become a shepherd of words. <clears throat> I've, um, I've sort of 
Um, so I'll write a little bit in the morning. Then I'll usually walk somewhere uh, at an artificial distance, like a mile and a half away to a coffee shop um, to, you know, to clear out my brain. Uh, and then I'll do a bit more writing there. And then I'll walk somewhere else, do a bit more writing there. And then I'll come home. And by the time I've got home, I've done a writing day, but I've probably covered about five to six miles on foot as well. Mm. Um, but the thing is, you can't make these changes without introducing friction into your life. Mm. Um, it's not like, it's not like you won't lose anything, but you won't lose your marbles either. No. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard because the environment is set up against it in many ways. We were fighting that kind of battle against the environment and even, you know, exercise is one thing, but even dietary pressures that exist everywhere. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I really struggle with my, with my um, weight. I've never not struggled with my weight. But yeah, so the, the environment that we're in does make it very easy for us to consume uh, calories without sort of satisfying us in a way that, that they used to. I mean, we're supposed to be, you know, raw meat. I mean, who wants to do that? I'm not going to do that. I think, I, I, yeah, I, I, one of the things I'm working on writing is about that kind of diet approach. I'm, we're allowed a little bit of raw meat, but actually we we're mostly hunter-gatherers. We only, we, presumably raw meat was a relative. Um, <laughs> it was a treat. It was a relative rarity, wasn't it? It was a treat, yeah. I mean, the things we, we ate, I mean, again, there's not a great deal of science on this because yeah. of the kinds of... Um, um because the kinds of remains that are out there but it looks like the paleo diet was just like rats and 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 berries just basically it looks like hunter gatherers were just opportunistic they'd just eat anything that was that was edible really yeah and we don't we don't our relationship with food is not like that is it no not at all and i think you're right that i mean it is hard we might never get evidence because they were all living in grasslands or wherever you and there's there's not going to be a decent fossil record no, and the numbers were so tiny, relatively, of course, as well of of you know Homo sapiens back then that the the kind of the were I'm sure a few more fossils will turn up, but it's not there's not going to be an abundance of them. That's for sure. No, there isn't, and and even then, um, you're you know you're looking at one individual and yeah. then and then saying or assuming that not only a, a whole group might have had the same way, but an entire species. So there's always going to be there's always going to be questions, but we do know that. Um, that a refined diet, a carbohydrate diet, which I firmly believe a carbohydrate diet isn't in itself bad for you, but um, a refined a, a diet of refined carbohydrates has changed the shape of our face. It's the reason that we have to have dentistry. It's the reason that we have to have our wisdom teeth removed because nobody's got enough space in their mm. heads anymore because their our diet so much processing is food processing is done outside of the outside of the mouth. So one of the programs that we're doing for the BBC is um, is about how our face has been changed by modern life, and you know this is a really big one. Is that um, uh, you know all, everybody has crooked teeth or has to have some teeth removed because yeah. there's not enough space, and it's a lovely example of how our DNA um, has a plan. Our DNA expects our, our our jaw to come into contact with a certain environment that's going to provide it with certain kinds of foods. Yeah. So that by the time our adult teeth come through, the jaw and the um, mus uh, musculature around it will be big enough to take all of these extra teeth. And in the fossil record, there's, you know, there are loads of, there are loads, there, there are many skulls in the fossil record. Uh, there are quite a few mandibles and the teeth are, you know, not always, but very nearly always perfect. Yeah. I always note that, that the, uh, that I've seen that commented quite a few times that, 
you know, these people then uh, they they just had no trouble with their teeth because at the moment I'm like I have I mean I'm a, I bother the hell out of my dentist on a regular basis for all the yeah. horrific problems I've got and you Me wonder too. you wonder how anybody managed back in the day you yeah. know prehistoric without dentists and other things but of course they just didn't have that problem and they spent their youths chewing on fibrous stalks and raw meat and what have you yeah. and they're just it, that if you, if you put a bone under pressure and it's the the law that I've forgotten the name of now that you mentioned in the book a couple of times law. yeah the, actually that'll make your bone your bone will get bigger it'll adapt yeah um, yeah to that to that kind of and we've lost that as well. So it's an, it's an interesting, as I'm driving endlessly to the orthodontist with my children to get their crooked teeth sorted out. Oh. Um, one thing I must ask about Vibar is because it, it's, um, it's a big topic and very interesting and you've yeah. got quite strong feelings about it is that in some ways your book and this one and footnotes to some extent was a bit of a love letter to the foot. Um, <laughs> and, yes. and, and, you know, kind of um, lamenting the terrible things we now do to it. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about your sort of feelings about feet and the amazing structure they are and about barefoot running. Oh, right. So, yeah, I, I do I, I do love our feet. I think I love them <laughs> because I learned so much about them. So with footnotes, I had to learn a fair bit about the, the feet. And I couldn't um, do primate change without talking about, you know, th- th- these are the parts of our body that, that, that have brought us to the top of the food chain. Um, that have brought us to, to, to modern life, um, not only because it meant that we had lots of advantages out on the savannah. You know, being upright means that only about, um, you know, the sun can only hit about 40% of your body when it's at its hottest, whereas if you're a quadruped, it hits about 70% of it. So we had, it gave us enormous um, um, heat advantages out on the savannah. Um, but it's also incredibly, incredibly powerful. So like just the, the arch of your foot. So only about, um, uh, again, this is an estimate, but it's, um, only about two thirds of people in the, in the UK have an arched foot. But our, all our feet are supposed to have, um, uh, arches. We're all born flat footed and then the musculature, um, develops through childhood. But the, 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 the arch of your foot when you're running, um, you know, 15% of your propulsion can come from the, from that little bit of space. You know, as you, as you, as you, uh, load the structure, as your, as your foot hits the ground, as your body weight loads into that, uh, those tendons and, and muscles, 15% of your body weight can be returned, uh, sorry, is returned as you, as you, um, as you spring forwards. So I, I just think it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing piece of technology. It's incredibly sensitive. You know, the, the reason that we, um, it's one of the key tickle points of the body is because <laughs> there are, there are so many subcutaneous receptors there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, they're, they're just in, incredible things. And I think we take them for, yeah. for granted and we do them a grave disservice as well by, you know, another industrial revolution, another invention of the industrial revolution was, concrete and concrete has now you know taken over our world and it makes it not it makes it challenging to go around without shoes on or even with just thin soled shoes on because concrete hurts them after a while they're they're amazing feet and you couldn't the the, the range of functions they fulfill and so effectively and you couldn't invent them they were they would have you know that's that my feeling yeah, that's kind of there are just the there are just the epitome of what evolution can do in terms of just creating an incredibly well adapted structure 
all sorts for all sorts of it's absolutely they're absolutely fascinating one of the things you have described in the book is your own i know that you kind of try and run barefoot but you've been quite honest and open about the fact it's hard isn't it about the reasons of concrete and you can't you don't do it all the time are you how are you getting on with it now uh i'm not doing it at all at the moment it's too cold um, well, of course winter so, time's hard yeah it's i mean a one of the things that I talked about in footnotes was I just said barefoot running is not a religion <laughs> and you don't have to defend it and you don't have to do it all the time. Um, um, so my uncle was a barefoot runner um, and he um, ran for Ireland. He ran in um, uh, two Olympics. He won the European Championships in 1966 and he was a barefoot runner because because there were no running shoes. Um, uh, you know, he was from rural Ireland Um uh, he did. He did. Um, he did get put into shoes when he came over to, to England in the early sixties, um, but he took them off again after he uh, retired. So I think one of the things about the shoe, the running shoe industry, and this this debate's been had by lots of people, but I think it's very difficult to to get into your head how little time we have needed um, running shoes to be able to run. So if our species gets up onto two feet about 2.3 million years ago, um, if you were to compress that time into the nine to five of a working day, um, the, the time at which we start uh, running in cushioned shoes happens within the last second of that day. Yeah. For the rest, for the rest of that time, we never, we never had shoes to, to run in. So. The weight of that evidence suggests that the running shoe companies really need to be able to produce evidence to show that we need them. And although they can uh, talk about um, comfort and uh, and protection, there isn't actually any science that shows that running shoes, pre- you know, prevent injury. You know, after all this time, and with, I mean, if you think of the the amount of money that Asics and Brooks and Nike um, have to invest in this kind of science. And there is no science. So I do run in shoes that are, um, when I wear shoes, I run in shoes that have, they have no support whatsoever because I want the muscles of my feet to, to work hard. Um, uh, but they do have a, a tiny bit of cushioning because it's just easier on concrete. I do, I think that the human body can cope with concrete, but not for really long periods and especially not if you're a sedentary worker. Um, you know, if you're used to not doing anything, you can't just go out running barefoot and expect you, the bones of your body to stand up to your body weight against that kind of impact. You'll get a, um, uh, uh, name's gone out of my head, uh, stress fracture. You'll get a stress yeah. fracture. Yeah, I think, um, if you're going to go barefoot, and I think there's a lot to be said for it, I mean, I, I think the evidence is in its favour entirely. But um, as you say, the environment's not the easiest to run in. We're not, but we're not accustomed to it. So no, that's right. If you go to it, you've got suboptimal for yeah, that reason. Yeah, you've got to do it gradually and move towards it. And it's a lovely thing to do. Mm. We, um, Peter Francis is a sports scientist from Leeds Beckett University. He was on the podcast a few couple of months ago talking about barefoot running as well. Oh, yeah. And interestingly, has very much they've done some preliminary research showing that it could cure plantar fasciitis. Um, so very preliminary. They've just got a case study or a small case series. So yeah. you know, in, but in in terms of the hierarchy of evidence, a long way to go. But of course, it fits with all the kind of. Of course, it does. It, it, there's a really nice, and I think actually mentioned in the book that plantar fasciitis is probably you know one of the causes is shoes. Um, I think it's yeah. on your list. Yes, it's a, it, it it is, and. Um, uh, I, when I've, I've interviewed 
I've been to see Irene Davis twice in Boston. Irene Davis is is fantastic. Um, her work is so interesting. But the last time we were there, we were speaking about plantar fasciitis. Uh, will, your listeners will know what that is, right? I think so. That's that kind of pain at the bottom of the heel. Some might not know it is that kind of on the heel spur. Yeah, and it's 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 it looks like it's basically the the last line of defence when the, the muscles in the the intrinsic muscles in the feet have atrophied. atrophied. Um, but it, yeah, so returning some of that musculature is a is a key way of taking the pressure off the off the fascia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is vibe. I think that I, I think we're out of time. I'm, it's been absolutely fascinating. I know we've oh, moved. Thank you. I think I know we've moved around, but it's been absolutely fascinating. I, I, I love the fact that you've challenged a lot of my preconceptions. I, one of the things I should mention is I love the fact that you kicked a, the longevity argument a little bit because it gets on my wick that we're never comparing like with like and that child right. mortality is not taken into consideration when we look at, um, overall, when we compare life expectancies across the world and across history. Yeah, and but one of the really important things about climate change is that I'm not trying to make a case that we need to go back. What I'm saying is that we need to cherry pick uh, what was best about um, how our lives were and bring them forwards into modern life. <laughs> Somebody commented online, you know, it's one of these comments that obviously I haven't read in one of the articles I'd written, but they said, but I think, I think infant more, you know, the low infant mortality rate is a very good thing. And it's just like, yeah, I think it's good as well. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not suggesting that 40% of, oh, I'm not even going to say it. Anyway, um, yeah. yeah. So it's about, it's more about cherry picking, looking at what worked for the human body in the past and finding ways of bringing it into modern living. Yeah. Yeah, and I think your winding back sections in the book do that really nicely, and they're kind of a, a really good, really good examples of the, taking the good things from you know our evolution on a history and putting them into yeah. trying to incorporate them into modern life. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Viber, where can we find out a little bit more about you and your work and your books and what you're up to? Uh, my books are obviously both available on Amazon. You can find everything about me by my first name, which is V Y B A R R. I'm on Twitter as at Vibar. Um, but if you just Google that Vibar, you'll find me and an industrial wax polymer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Viber, that is fantastic. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Modern life basically for about 10,000 years has... Um, oh, sorry, my Alexa has just gone off. <laughs> So I'm going to have to turn that off. It's telling me about modern life is rubbish now. Hold on. <laughs> is it the Blur album? Yeah, it's, it is, yeah. It'll start playing it. <laughs> hey, Siri, shut up. <laughs> that, that worked. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> right, where were we? <laughs> modern life is rubbish for the glutes. <laughs>